Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals and the people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting pro-animal laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. I'm joined today by Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby. Wayne is the founder of Animal Wellness Action. Marty is its executive director and chief lobbyist in D.C. Our custom is we go first to Marty for a legislative update and big news on the Hill this week regarding big cats. Give us the lowdown. Yes, thank you, Joe. It's been a wonderful week we just ended. And uh, fortunately, we're able to see the passage of the Big Cat Public Safety Act through the U.S. House of Representatives by a vote of 272 to 114. We had about 48 Republicans that voted in support of it, despite their leadership's uh, disdain for the bill. Um, We had some people that really stepped up, thanks to former Congressman Jeff Denham, who is now lobbying with us together for the passage of the legislation. He was the original author of the bill and the terrific work, of course, of Representative Brian Fitzpatrick and Representative Mike Garcia along with Democrat Mike Quigley from Illinois. So we're really thrilled to see that legislation get over the goal line in the U.S. House. Many of you may recall in one of our previous episodes, we talked with the co-star of the hit Netflix series, Tiger King, Miss Carol Baskin, and she has been instrumental with this legislation and working with us and getting this done. Uh, we do have a little bit of an uphill battle in the U.S. Senate and only a few weeks left in the Congress, but there are 35 co-sponsors of that legislation that's led by Senator Richard Blumenthal, who is uh, Wayne's very good friend, and we hope that we can see some more momentum and get this over the goal line and signed into law in the next Congress that's coming up. Uh, Other good news that I'd like to share with you is we believe uh, that the Horse Racing Integrity Act that we have long been trying to pass, uh, now renamed the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act, uh, Mm -hmm. that passed the U.S. House back in September, uh, led by Congressman Paul Tonko from New York, Andy Barr from Kentucky, and by Senator Mitch McConnell in the U.S. Senate, um, is looking really good. We think that we're probably going to see that attached to the year-end spending bill and hopefully get signed into law before the end of December. Uh, That's something Wayne and I have been working on for the past six years. Uh, Really, Wayne's been working on it longer than than I have. And we're so elated to see this bring an end to doping uh, in the United States in American horse racing. And it's something that really shows when you work together with an industry like we did with the Jockey Club, the Preakness, the New York Racing Association that owns the Belmont Stakes and so many others like the Breeders' Cup, that you can really accomplish great things for animals. Uh, We've tried to do that, of course, with the Prevent All Soaring Tactics Act that we've had our last two episodes about and discussions of compromise on that legislation. We still continue to press on over the next couple of weeks on that, but we definitely have some obstacles that have been created by the Humane Society of the United States and several other groups. We're trying to work through those obstacles and challenges, uh, but we're going to keep pressing on and see where we can end up on that before the end of the year. It's probably our, honestly, last real shot at getting something done to end soaring, and we all care so much about that. Uh, More positive news, of course, I think, that uh, we've had some really great exchanges this week. We had a letter from about 22 U.S. House members 
to the appropriators on the $11 million wild horse PZP birth control amendment that Congressman Steve Cohen led in the House and it passed back in July. Um, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey led a letter also in the U.S. Senate. So we've got some great support on that. I hope that we see that in the year-end spending bill, along with the provisions that we worked on uh, to get language related to enforcing the animal cruelty laws and the cockfighting laws at the Department of Justice, and uh, hopefully language related to the Office of Inspector General's uh, report on the horse slaughter and horse protection programs at USDA related also to the soaring cause. I think we'll have a couple of other things that we're working on that we'll likely see along with um, potentially as much as $2 million in funding for enforcement of the Horse Protection Act, primarily because of the support of Congressman Hal Rogers from Kentucky, who is a key appropriator in the House that's been uh, on the opposition side for many years on this issue with us. But we are in agreement that there needs to be more funding, and we're hopeful that we'll see that $2 million in the final package, along with as much as $5 million in equine-assisted therapy funding uh, in the Veteran Affairs Department's uh, funding for FY21, uh, led by Congressman Andy Barr from Kentucky. So we've got a lot of great provisions. I think we're going to get most of it in the year-end spending bill. Wayne may want to add also about the FDA trophy hunting and the gray wolves as it relates to what we're dealing with here at the end of the year as well. Sure. Thanks, Marty. Well, there, there's, a, there's a lot that was packed into to Marty's comments. We're continuing to work on trying to get the U.S. Department of Justice to aggressively enforce our federal anti-cruelty laws. We, if listeners remember, we introduced a bill with our allies in Congress called the Animal Cruelty Enforcement Act to create a dedicated animal cruelty crime section at the Department of Justice to enforce the PACT Act, the Preventing Animal Cruelty and Torture Act, the Federal Animal Fighting Law, the Pet Women's Safety Act, uh, the Anti-Crush Video Law, all of the other federal anti-cruelty statutes. So we have language in the House and Senate bills that from the Congress urging the DOJ to take aggressive action on these issues. We also have freestanding bills that we will work to get reintroduced next year. Uh, so we won't get that bill passed this year, but there's still a chance that the Department of Justice may independently create the section because of all of the attention that we have focused on this problem. And we've got some very, very good discussions going with the Department of Justice in enforcing our laws. We're feeding cases to the DOJ so the U.S. attorneys and other federal prosecutors uh, can make cases. But lots of other stuff, and uh, folks can go to animalwellnessaction.org and see updates in our In the News section where we provide updates on all these matters and so many others. Yeah, thank you, gentlemen. Marty, uh, stimulus talks, uh, COVID relief, seem to be the headline out of D.C. right now in terms of legislative movement. Is there bandwidth on the Hill right now to consider the kinds of legislation you've described? Yes, I think so. I think there's um, several approaches that the leaders in the House and the Senate are looking at. We could see a year-end spending bill and then a separate COVID package, or we could see both of those measures tied together. I think there's been a great deal of support in sign-on letters from both members of Congress and outside organizations for the Preventing Future Pandemics Act that uh, Mike Quigley in the House, who led the Big Cats Bill, is also leading along with Cory Booker in the Senate. And we have a couple of other opportunities there. Um, I tend to think with with the clock ticking as it is, we have five days until the government uh, current funding runs out that they'll likely 
uh, introduce a continuing resolution for a few days to give a little more time to get through whatever year in spending package comes to fruition and the COVID uh, package as well. All right. Very good. Thank you. Uh, We mentioned uh, the coronavirus. Several of our earlier episodes talked about zoonotic diseases generally, zoonotic diseases being those that leap between uh, humans and non-human animals. Our guest today is able to speak on one of those zoonotically prone creatures directly. Uh, I was very surprised to learn that the mink is the second most susceptible mammal to the coronavirus right behind human beings. So they, they are more likely than other kinds of animals uh, beyond humans to catch the virus and to return it back to humans, which allows the virus one more crucible in which to mutate. It's a huge issue, and our guest is very steeped in knowledge, not only from a legal perspective, but from a personal perspective, and that guest is Scott Beckstead. Uh, he is the newly anointed director of Campaigns for Animal Wellness Action and the Center for a Humane Economy. Scott spent a great deal of time of his childhood and youth on his grandfather's mink farm and grew up next door to the largest commercial fur operation in Idaho. After receiving his bachelor's degree from Utah State University and his JD from the University of Utah, Beckstead worked as an attorney in private practice on the central Oregon coast before going to work full-time in the animal protection sector. He is known for his special expertise in the field of animal law and is taught that subject at the University of Oregon and Willamette University Law Schools. In 2000, he co-authored Animal Law, the first casebook on the subject. He continues to teach animal law, wildlife law, and policy at Willamette. So, Scott, congratulations on uh, joining the team at Animal Wellness Action and super excited to talk to you today. I'm thrilled to be here, uh, Joseph and Marty and Wayne. Uh, good to see you guys here as well. So tell us about your work, what you plan to be doing for Animal Wellness Action in the Center for a Humane Economy. What's on your agenda? Well, it's it's uh, um, uh, it's it's an ambitious agenda. At times, I, I uh, even stress myself out looking at all the issues that, uh, that we're managing. But as director of campaigns, uh, it's my job to make sure that there's strategic thinking behind uh, our priority issues, whether it's uh, kangaroos, uh, trying to save kangaroos from the kangaroo skin trade in Australia, to fighting for our American wild horses and burros, uh, to you know, dealing with you know, all the other issues out there, whether it's trophy hunting uh, or you know, what we've come here to talk about today, which is, which is mink farming. So. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of this team. It's the most dynamic and engaging group of people I've ever worked with. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and I'm thrilled to be able, I think, too, to bring, to bring my personal history to bear in the work that I do for, for these organizations. I was born and raised in Southern Idaho. Uh, as you mentioned, I, I spent a lot of time on my grandfather's mink farm and I actually grew up next door to the largest fur farm in all of Idaho, uh, but I was, I, you know, I, I, um, I raised cattle as a kid. We, we had a, a small family farm where we raised cattle. Um, I, was, I was an active hunter. I hunted uh, just about every wildlife species that was huntable uh, in Idaho uh, as a kid and a youth. Um, and I, you know, I showed my beef steers in high school, Future Farmers of America. I also showed dairy heifers. So I come to this, to this effort with, 
I would say, sort of a non-traditional background. It's a, a background that's very similar to Marty's. You know, we both grew up around animals. We both grew up um, in environments where things were done to animals that, um, you know, that we are both now trying to put an end to. Um, and so uh, I'm just, you know, I, I'm thrilled to be able to, to use my story uh, as a tool for advocacy, whether we're talking about horses or whether we're talking about cattle or whether we're talking about me. Yeah, and I want to go to your story in just a moment, but let me ask you first, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that fur is still a big deal. You know, we think of so many uh, PETA campaigns, we think of all of the billboards, the celebrities, uh, the shaming of many individuals who continue to buy and wear fur. Uh, what is going on with, with fur uh, in the stores today, in the public consciousness, and is it still losing steam? Well, yeah, I mean that's that's actually one of the one of the central um, uh, issues when we talk about the health threat posed by these mink farms. Uh, you know, it, it we have to ask ourselves why are these animals being raised? You know, for what market? There is virtually no market left for fur in the United States uh, and and in in most of the Western uh, uh, countries. There, you know, the public is now fully aware of the cruelty. Uh, involved in producing fur, whether it's, uh, you know, raising animals on farms or whether it's, you know, using traps and snares to catch wild animals. Most, most um, um, you know, Americans reject, you know, have rejected fur, as have most of the, of the fashion designers, uh, you know, the retail outlets. Everyone has walked away from fur as a luxury item. So, that that begs the question: What what are these uh, what are these uh, farms in operation for? Why are that? Why do we still have mink farms in the United States? And the answer is China. Uh, just as we produce huge volumes of pork uh, for the Chinese market, we uh, you know, almost all the mink being raised here in the United States are being raised uh, for export to China. Uh, it remains one of the only viable markets uh, for fur left. Um, and so, you know, uh, as Wayne has, has uh, so eloquently stated um, in, in the press and, and in, in, you know, public statements on this issue, why should, why should we be, you know, the factory mink farm for China? Why should we be, you know, subjecting the American people to a pronounced public health risk for the benefit of wealthy Chinese consumers? That's, that's really what this question comes down to. It's, it's Wayne Paselli here again. And Again, I want to to really thank Scott for joining our team. He's a he's a rare talent. I think this background that he brings uh, really just you know puts a puts a pin in the argument from our critics that you know we are just urbanites who do not understand rural culture. We do not understand how these industries operate. That these are the harsh realities of the world in which we live. And I think, you know, Scott, with his own personal journey, having been involved in many animal use activities and now really taking a, a different approach as a matter of personal conduct, as well as advocating for broader policies in the country, uh, I think is a very, very potent advocate. It's often people who came from this world who then, you know, at some point in their life got a new take on this question and saw with clarity that we don't need to do these things to animals who can become the most powerful advocates for reform. 
precisely because of their very deep personal experiences. Mink farming, Joe, as you noted, is something that really has been below the radar screen. One um, reason for that is that a lot of us, uh, you know, a lot of people thought that this was a settled matter, that we no longer need to use fur to keep warm and to maintain, you know, any stylish pose. You know, this is not the 17th century or 18th century when the fur trade was, you know, a very central part of our North American economy, uh, where people needed fur to stay warm, especially as you, you know, go further north in terms of our uh, living environments. Uh, so, you know, now we have synthetic alternatives. We have natural fibers. Uh, we have fake fur that has the same look and feel and all of the same properties for warmth and style. So we just don't need to do this. Yet we still have a major mink producing industry. There are also several other species such as foxes and chinchillas who are killed on fur farms. And then the other side of that is the killing of free roaming wild animals uh, with steel gel like hole traps, snares, conibear traps, and other traps uh, killed for their pelts and what amounts to a continuation of market hunting which most contemporary wildlife management agencies pay lip service to saying that their participation in the North American wildlife management model is a contrast to the market hunting that characterized 19th century approaches to wildlife. Uh, this is market hunting. There are no management plans for these animals like beavers or coyotes or um, bobcats who are killed for their fur. The Trapping intensity is driven by the pelt prices. You see trapping numbers spike when the value of the pelts is higher and decline when the pelts are lower. But really big numbers are killed in the United States and in other countries in the world uh, on factory farms. And mink are by far the number one factory farmed uh, animal in the world for their fur. Uh, we raise nearly 3 million a year in the United States. Uh, the Danes raised more than 15 million, and there are many, many other countries involved, including the Chinese. But Scott has noted the Chinese are now the biggest market. Obviously, there are more than 1.2 billion people in China. Um, a small segment of that uh, population, um, you know, has you know considerable discretionary wealth, and even if a small percentage of them demand uh, fur. Uh, there are as many as 40 mink killed for a single mink coat. So you can see how the numbers really multiply quickly with just a small, you know, few hundred thousand uh, people who are interested in, in wearing mink coats. You can see that creates a demand for tens of millions of mink throughout the world. And as Scott noted, you know, declining interest in the United States in mink coats for wearing uh, has really left the Chinese as the major global market. So all these European nations in the United States are raising these poor mink for, for their pelts. And, you know, why are we taking all of these risks because of the zoonotic threats that mink pose to our human health, as well as, of course, to the mink's health, you know, in order to supply the Chinese with a luxury good? It just doesn't make much sense to me. So, Scott, uh, tell us a little bit about your background as a child uh, around the mink industry. How have conditions changed for mink since then, um, and, and where do you see it going? So kind of what did you see when you were growing up, 
and and how is it still and where do you, where do you see that continuing well um you know first um, um it's it's easy for us to condemn people who are engaged in in a particular livelihood because we don't like how it's done or or even that it's done at all but i think that we can draw a distinction between uh the people and the enterprise um my grandfather, uh, who was my mother's uh, dad, uh, was one of the kindest, um, most generous people I've ever known. He was a wonderful father to my mother, uh, a, a wonderful grandfather. He was soft-spoken. Uh, I remember uh, Grandpa um, uh, being very tender with his mink when he when he held them, and and he, I remember very vividly that whenever he would hold a mink, he would. Uh, speak to it in, in that soft voice of his. And uh, I remember him harshly reprimanding his foreman when he thought uh, that the foreman was handling the mink too roughly. Um, it, it was very important for him to feel like he was giving those mink the very best life he could. And, and I have no doubt that uh, most of the people caught up in this industry are, are honest, decent, hardworking people. But they're caught up in an enterprise that really is based on animal suffering. And, and these farms are, they're factory farms in the worst sense of the word. You're taking thousands upon thousands of animals and cramming them into crowded conditions, uh, filthy conditions, uh, you know, and, and it, it generates huge amounts of waste and wastewater. And you know, I think what makes the mink farms particularly uh, cruel is that this is still very much a wild species. The mink is is you know has only been kept in captivity for its fur, uh, you know, for for you know probably less than a century, I would think. So the the animal is being bred uh, to um, produce different uh, shades of colors and a higher quality of fur. But it's not being bred to be a more handleable, more docile animal. And so you see, you know, very wild behaviors in these mink on these farms. And, uh, you know, they are in the wild a semi-aquatic species. They spend uh, much, if not most, of their day in the water hunting for fish and frogs and waterfowl and things like that. Um, and, and, you know, by contrast on these industrial mink farms, you know, each mink is probably given a, a, an amount of space in a barren cage that is, you know, like less than twice the size of a shoebox. Um, the animals engage in these neurotic behaviors where they bob and weave and pace endlessly all day, clearly frustrated by not being able to roam and, and, uh, and, and go about, you know, a normal life as, as mink should. Um, and, and so, you know, on, on, on my grandfather's farm, I remember that uh, picking up mink who had succumbed over the course of the night to their injuries, either from their penmates uh, or, you know, the, the injuries they did to themselves was just part of the operation. So we see a lot of cannibalism among farm-raised mink. We see a lot of self-mutilation. Um, and I, I remember very distinctly that no one was allowed out in the mink yard when the mothers were giving birth because the slightest disturbance would cause some of them to kill their young. It's exactly what you would expect if you took a wild species and crammed thousands and thousands of individuals of that species into these very barren uh, conditions. Um, and so, uh, you know, how have things changed? I think that 
uh, some of the the slaughter methods uh, are different than what I uh, than what I participated in. Actually, believe it or not, that was uh, my job for most of the time growing up was actually working out in the in the mink sheds doing the killing. Um, and my job was to to basically watch the timer on the gas chambers for the males who were too large to have their necks broken. They would be shoved into these little uh, these little um, uh, tiny little chutes uh, with a wire floor, and under that wire floor was a pan with cyanide powder. And we set the the, the timer, a uh, little baking timer, for seven minutes, and you could hear those poor mink struggling and screaming and, and trying desperately to, to get out. And when they went quiet and the and the timer went off, then it was my job to pull them out of of there, make sure that they were dead, and then. Uh, position their bodies in a certain way uh, so that they would be easier to skin, um, and and I think that some of those some of those I think now the most popular method of slaughtering mink for their fur is with gas, uh, not the cyanide powder that my grandfather used, but uh, but like a, a carbon dioxide. Um, it's it's a terrible way to to go, and I think that I think most people are are fundamentally aware that um, that raising animals like this uh, for a luxury item just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to do it to, to pigs and chickens or dairy cows on factory farms, um, you know, where, where those are commodities that most people continue to, to eat. Uh, but, but to do that for a luxury item, and especially a luxury item that is now being uh, shipped overseas to China, I think most people would find unconscionable. Let me ask you this. One of the subjects that really interests me is the effect killing animals day after day has on the people doing the killing. Did you see any changes in your personality over your time spent in the mink uh, shed? It wasn't just the mink, uh, Joseph. I, I occupied this strange space as a child where I I loved going hunting. I loved going to grand, grandpa's mink farm. I loved doing all of these things that, that were enjoyable activities, except that they culminated in the death of an animal. And that was the piece that always stuck with me in a negative way. And so, you know, I remember uh, my senior year in, in high school uh, leading my show steer. His name was Ted, a wonderful, wonderful animal who was kind and uh, he had grown to trust me, and we had worked all summer together uh, for the show ring. And leading him up onto the semi and taking his halter off and him watching as I walked away uh, and knowing that he was on his way to be slaughtered was, you know, it, it hit me in a way that I think a lot of, of the things that I had done up until that point didn't. And I really, you know, looking at his face, looking into his eyes and asking how I could you know, spend, you know, months with this animal becoming his best friend and then to send him off to his death, uh, you know, it struck me. And I think it, you know, it's because I was, I was, you know, starting to grow up and mature and think for myself by that point, I was a senior in high school. So um, what I think all of my personal history did uh, with animals, first of all, I, I owe such a debt of gratitude to my parents for, let, for raising me with animals, for letting me, you know, grow up in the company of animals and, and develop these amazing close friendships with animals. I am so grateful for that. But likewise, I'm also grateful for being exposed to these industries and these practices that involve killing animals and causing them to suffer. I did, I did these things myself. Um, and what emerged was uh, an individual myself who 
was committed to nurturing the side of myself that wanted to be with animals and take care of them and make sure they were safe and protected um, while jettisoning this other part of myself that, um, that was involved in, in you know, causing suffering and death. Uh, and I think it, it, like Wayne said, I think it has made me a more, a more effective advocate because I can actually speak to these activities and I, you know, I'm not, you know, uh, an, an East Coast liberal vegan who has never, you know, seen the inside of a barn and never sat on a horse, you know, don't know what it's like working with animals. Um, and so I think that that credibility, you know, lends itself to, you know, more effective advocacy on my part. At least I like to think so. Yeah, Joe, it's Wayne. I'd like to just chime in. That's well said from Scott. I think this is a really important subject for all animal advocates that, you know, we grow up in different places, we have different families, we touch different businesses, and some of us have a longer journey to make uh, to get to a place where we're living our life in a way that does not cause gratuitous harm to animals. You know, I think when it comes to animals, because animals are everywhere in our market economy, they're in our food system, they're used in the textile industry, everything from our sneakers to our headwear. Uh, they are involved in in use and testing and research for uh, so many of the pharmaceutical products that are consumed, even the cosmetics that women wear. The you know use of animals in sport, whether spectator sports like horse racing and racing, or participatory sports uh, like hunting, or you you name it. I mean, it's everywhere, and almost all of us have been involved at some level in this system and this enterprise where billions of animals are killed every year, you know, for our convenience, our palate preference, our recreational interests, our clothing, you name it. And obviously, Scott is a bit of an unusual animal advocate, having grown up in an environment where he did many of these uh, enterprises, from raising animals for food to raising animals for fur to hunting, not that many of us have had a, have had an experience of raising animals for fur, but yet it remains a big global industry, but a global industry that just must sunset. And one of the things that we've talked about as we've seen these COVID outbreaks for mink farms is that, my God, this is just another example of our maxim at Animal Wellness Action that helping animals helps us all. That when we're good to animals, we reduce risks to people in our society. Mink, through zero fault of their own, uh, are, are now a threat in a world where the COVID-19 virus has emerged and has ricocheted all over the globe. Mink happen to be big receivers of this virus. And it spreads very rapidly on the factory farms where they're overcrowded. And this virus has the potential to go from humans to mink, but then also from mink back to people. And many of the other animals who very rarely get COVID-19, such as dogs or cats or captive tigers, appear to be dead end hosts, mink or not. And that's why this is a big threat. And one of the things that we say in our work at Animal Wellness Action is that our work is not just about condemning and criticizing. It's understanding the history, the context, the sociology of these issues, but through reason and logic and science and just good common sense, 
trying to find a way where we can meet the basic needs for the people in our society without really creating a wake of cruelty you know, behind us. And we can have it both ways. We can have a society where we do have our basic needs uh, met, where we can enjoy recreation and food and clothe ourselves and do all of the things. We can have good science without tormenting animals. This happens to be a 21st century circumstance. We have learned because of the incredible ingenuity and smartness of, of people to figure out a way to do things in alternative ways. And we can get there. Make is an obviously easy one. We just don't need it any longer. It's so clear because the alternatives are already well-placed throughout the marketplace. But my God, these threats that exist from this conduct are really more pronounced than ever in a world where there are 7 billion of us interacting with many wild animals. And when we bring these wild animals into captive settings, my gosh, this is where the zoonotic disease threats really become evident, especially with certain species like mink. So that's why I, I really am glad that Scott, you know, for, for so many reasons is involved because he can really speak about the breadth of this and also remind people that the people who are involved in these practices are not evil. Uh, they are not bad people. They grew up doing these things. And, and uh, you know, they become defensive. They rationalize their conduct, as Scott, I'm sure, did as he was growing up. Uh, but, you know, we ask people of good sensibility to think through these issues. And I, for one, hope that we as individuals in our society are making rational choices. And rationality is the ally of animal welfare, because when we're bad to animals, it rebounds badly toward people. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. Marty, um, so the consumers, China, how do we raise enough momentum for legislative protection for minks when there, there's no constituency that necessarily would champion them, right? I mean, yeah, oh, definitely. I think there are. I mean, we've heard a ton on this subject just based on the blogs and uh, op-eds and various emails we've sent to our constituent list here at Animal Wellness Action and at the Center for Humane Economy. I think that we're having some great conversations with legislators about uh, mink legislation uh, that could progress in the next Congress. Um, it's basically the consumer advocate that you have out there that can also weigh in with their legislator and uh, animal protection advocates as well. I think, you know, one thing I wanted to mention, just sort of asking this posing this question to, to Wayne and Scott. I remember um, when I was a kid, my godmother passed away and she left my mother this mink coat with the heads still on the minks and you could see their eyeballs and their noses. And it was really creepy, honestly. That's really what I remember about mink coats. And But she treasured it and thought it was this prized possession and probably still hangs in her closet to this day and is never worn. But I know there are so many people out there that have mink coats they've inherited from family members or ended up with one way or another. And I had someone recently ask me, what could they do with those mink coats if they don't want them? They don't want to own them. They don't want to keep that as a symbol, you know, themselves of what animal cruelty might be in their home. So Scott, Wayne, what can people do with a mink coat that they have and they don't want anymore? Probably the most popular uh, suggestion that I've heard is donating them to wildlife rehab centers 
who use them as you know nesting materials for orphaned young wildlife. Um, uh, you know, you know, basically, you know, you take a a young bobcat uh, or a young fox, you know, and it's orphaned, and you need a you know a, a warm bed for it. You know, being able to use real animal fur for that. Uh, you know, I, I there are also a lot of people I know who have their furs, and they they give their fur a very uh, respectful burial uh, in a way of honoring the lives of the animals who uh, were killed for that for that uh, fur article. So, you know, what what you don't want to do is put it back 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 out there on the market uh, in a way that uh, supports or promotes the industry. Anything else we, we want to bring up further related to minks? It it's, it's, has to be underscored that the mink issue represents the, uh, the infectious disease potential when you marry wildlife with factory farming. Both, we know that both the wildlife trade and factory farming have given rise to some of the worst pandemics that have you know, struck the human race. The Ebola virus started with, uh, you know, the bushmeat markets in, in Africa, as did AIDS. Uh, you know, SARS started in wildlife markets in, uh, in, in Southeast Asia. And, you know, MRSA, a terrible infectious disease that started in camel populations, domestic camel populations in the Middle East. All of these, you know, and, and then, of course, H1N1 and the swine flu, which gave which started on industrial pig farms. And now we're seeing that infectious disease experts are predicting that the next big pandemic, which may very well dwarf the coronavirus, both in its contagious abilities as well as its lethality, will almost certainly start on a factory pig farm, whether that's in China or whether that's in North Carolina or Iowa. That is almost certainly because the, the swine flu virus uh, shows an amazing ability to adapt and be transmitted to from, from uh, pigs to other species. Uh, and so I think that, you know, this, this really is, I mean, we're talking about animal welfare. I mean, that's, that's why we are all doing the work that we do. But, you know, for people who are also uh, equally concerned or even more concerned with human health, you know, you have to look at how we treat wildlife and how we treat the animals that we raise for food, um, or in the case of mink, luxury items, uh, how, that, how that affects the entire human population. The entire human population is being affected by this coronavirus. Yeah, I just want to say that we've seen how this has played out in Europe. You know, we saw big outbreaks of COVID-19 at fur farms in the Netherlands, which is one of the top fur producing countries in the world. Pretty small, industrious country with more than 400 fur farms. But we've now seen just about every major European fur farming nation have outbreaks, from Spain uh, in the far west of Europe to Lithuania, uh, Greece, Sweden, Finland, uh, and of course the biggie, Denmark, which is the number one fur producing nation in the world. Only 5 million people in Denmark, 17 million mink. The government has ordered the killing of just about all of those mink, uh, decimating the 1,150 uh, mink farms in the country, one of its biggest agricultural commodities, uh, mainly, again, for export to the Chinese. But the concern was incredible from public health authorities because not only did they see mink by the tens of thousands getting COVID-19, which means that many more hosts for the virus, which that 
which means that much more potential for any of those hosts to interact with people and transmit the virus back to people as a major public health threat. But the acute concern was that because so many mink got this, the increase in in the likelihood of a mutation was there, and they did see that the virus was mutating. Now, the world has spent tens and tens of billions of dollars attempting to develop a vaccine for COVID-19 that has cost our global community perhaps $20 trillion in GDP, $20 trillion. I mean, it has disrupted every aspect of our lives. And if this vaccine is delayed because the virus has changed, and therefore we have many months more uh, of the virus circling around the globe without a vaccine to arrest its progress, there could be no more calamitous situation for the global community as a matter of public health. And then all of the derivative effects of that in terms of the economy and disruption of families and people dying by the hundreds of thousands or millions, this is as big as it gets. So this is not just some small matter of mink. The media has not caught up to this problem. Uh, But we are sounding the alarm just as we sounded the alarm in 2003 after the first SARS outbreak in China, where SARS became uh, not a pandemic, but an epidemic, but it threatened to become to be a pandemic. We said, hey, this had a an origin in our mistreatment of animals, civet cats raised for food, and it jumped the species barrier. We said, if you have these live wildlife markets, this is going to recur. And it has recurred in a way that has been more impactful than any of us could have imagined. And we are saying the same thing now. If we don't stop these mink farms from operating, we're going to see a calamity. Take it to the bank because it's happening right now. And we might as well get get ahead of it in the United States rather than wait for the same set of circumstances to develop as they have in Europe. What we'd like to do on the mink issue is do a national buyout of the mink farms that the United States Department of Agriculture is already involved in subsidizing agriculture in so many ways, has conducted buyouts of other enterprises when there have been uh, risks and other threats that have emerged. Obviously, there's been disaster uh, relief provided to agricultural producers, price supports, uh, market promotion programs. So the United States Department of Agriculture is deeply involved. The government is deeply involved in agriculture. We hear this narrative about a lot of you know, self-made folks, and certainly agriculture is a tough business, no matter which commodity you're involved in. But the government is, is neck deep in it. And uh, this is a moment for our government that is working against COVID to fight this virus, to be involved in this, not be passive, not wait for this situation to metastasize further, uh, but to address it. So we'll be appealing to lawmakers in Congress, and we want our listeners, our supporters of Animal Wellness Action to be involved in this, to understand the magnitude of the crisis here from a zoonotic disease perspective, um, just as we may be seeing a vaccine uh, soon to be developed and to be utilized throughout the world, uh, we could be undermining this effort because of what is happening uh, with the virus on mink farms. 
All right, very good. Thank you for that, uh, Wayne. And thank you so much, Scott and, and Marty as well. Appreciate your being with us. And always thank you so much uh, to our listeners for tuning into the Animal Wellness Podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.